Joseph. And Joseph ultimately sends them back to Canaan with the grain they have bought. But he has heard them admit their guilt. They don't know he, they don't know he can understand them, but he hears them admit their guilt. But he keeps Simeon as a captive and says, if you bring Benjamin back, then everybody will go free. Unbelievably, as the, as the brothers return to Canaan and open their sacks of grain, they find their money in the sacks of grain. And so Jacob, or Israel, will not let them return at that time, despite Reuben's pleas that he would take the place if needed, or his sons would take the place if needed. But in chapter 43, Jacob and his family have finished the grain that they bought from Joseph, and they face starvation once again because the famine was severe. Jacob tells his sons to go back to Egypt and buy more food. Judah points out that Joseph will not meet with them, and therefore they will get no food because Joseph is the guy you get the the food from, unless Benjamin accompanies them. Israel wonders why they told Joseph about Benjamin. Judah replies, could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah then offers himself as a surety, a guarantee, that Benjamin will come back safely. Israel acquiesces and sends the brothers, this time with Benjamin and twice the money. They go back to Egypt for food. Later in chapter 43, they arrive in Egypt and they are utterly terrified. And you need to understand this as you hear the word that's preached or that's spoken today by Diane. They're terrified. They talk to the, they're, they, they're called to Joseph's home. And they're afraid they're going to become slaves. And they talk to the steward of Joseph's home, and they tell him that they didn't know that the money was in their sack when they went back to Canaan, but but they brought it back, so maybe everything will be okay. But the steward tells them not to worry, that the money must have been a gift of God as he had their money all along. And the steward brings Simeon out and provides for the brothers to wash their feet and to care for their donkeys. Then Joseph arrives. When Joseph sees Benjamin for the first time, he has to leave the room. He is so overcome with emotion as he sees his brother for the first time after all these years. Joseph regains his composure and sits to eat with his brothers. Chapter 43 concludes, he took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, so they feasted and they drank freely with him. as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the opening of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the opening of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. They had just left the city, and were now not far away, when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, Say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not that from which my Lord drinks, from which he uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to him, why does my Lord say such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the opening of the sacks We have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, he shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. So he said, now let it indeed be according to your words. He 
with whom it is found shall be my slave, but the rest of you shall be considered innocent. Then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes in grief, and when each man had loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell down on the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this thing that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What words can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me to do this, the man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant speak a word of, in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little boy born in our father's old age. Now his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to the Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, however, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. So it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And the father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we can go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one left me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. So now when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, since our father's life is so attached to the boy's life, when we see that the boy is not with us, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. So your servants will bring the gray hair, um, bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant accepted responsibility for the boy from my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then my father can um, let me take the blame forever. So now, please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy and let the boy go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear that I may see the evil that would overtake my father. Then Joseph, who could not control himself in front of everyone standing before him, he shouted, everyone, leave me. So there was no one with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. 
Then he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me ahead of you to save lives. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So God sent me ahead of you to ensure for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. All right. Thanks, Diane. All right. So now we're coming toward the end of our series on the fathers of the faith. Uh, Andy's going to complete the series next week. And we have certainly seen some broken people, haven't we? Oh, my goodness. In the lives of Jacob and his sons, we've seen stealing, scheming, jealousy, anger, selling a brother into slavery, lying, grudges. My goodness. These fathers of the faith sound a lot like us, don't they? In Scripture, yet, Scripture holds them up as giants of the faith. And this is one reason I think that the Bible speaks to me so deeply. There's no sugarcoating. There's no excuses given. Just really broken people living their really broken lives in a really broken world. And although Todd and Andy in these past weeks have tried to see strands of light emerging from these broken stories, frankly, until last week, it was really difficult to see much light in all of this. It's been difficult to see God at work behind the scenes. But last week, Todd brought us to the doorstep of redemption and restoration and took the first few steps in. And so today we're going to more fully explore this restoration that Joseph and his family experience and see what else we can learn for our lives. And you might ask, why spend so much time on this? We basically, Todd and I, in a way, are almost preaching the same passages. Well, the answer is simple. Redemption and restoration is the fundamental story of God and his dealings with mankind. Redemption and restoration is God's plan for his people as they live in community in the church. So today I have two points. We all need to offer and ask for forgiveness. And our forgiveness does not exonerate the offender. In our passage today, we have Joseph once again testing his brother. Todd told us last week that Joseph had seen the problems and tests that he faced. Let's see, being cast into a pit and left to die. Oops, not, you're not going to die. You're going to be sold into slavery. Oh, good, okay. Uh, being wrongfully accused by Potiphar's wife, once again thrown into prison. I don't know if you know much about prison in that day. It's not something you sat in a long time. You usually just sat there until you died. So he's thinking he's going to die again. And then all of a sudden, all these other good things happen. Joseph had seen God use all these problems to change him, to transform him into a thoughtful, caring individual, responsible really for the well-being of a whole nation. In other words, he was living proof, and he had experienced deeply the providence of God. 
And Joseph had been testing his brothers, as Todd noted. He was pushing them until they finally told the truth to themselves and to him. And it is Judah's magnificent speech here that confirms to Joseph that the brothers are now telling the truth and are fully, and everything's fully revealed. Now, how, how can Joseph be so certain about this? Well, let's think about the relationships here. Jacob had 12 sons. Leah, his first wife, who is not the one he really wanted, remember he worked those seven years for Laban to get Rachel. Oops, got Leah instead. Uh, she bore him six sons. Leah's maid Zilpah bore him two sons. Rachel's maid Bilhah bore him two sons. And Rachel, his beloved, bore him two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And Rachel, again, whom jo Jacob loved the most, died during Benjamin's birth. And it was really Jacob's favoritism to Joseph. If you trace it all the way back, it was really Jacob's favoritism to Joseph that caused his brothers to hate him and really started this whole sordid affair. Now consider that it is Benjamin who Jacob does not want to go to Egypt. Well, why would that be? It's because the affection he lavished on Joseph, he's now lavishing on Benjamin. Judah described it this way in his appeal to Joseph. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. His life was bound up. Joseph's life was bound up in Benjamin's. Sorry, Jacob's life was bound up in Benjamin. I'm sure I'm going to say some wrong names here, so y'all will know what I mean if I get, get some confusion here, okay? Again, so Joseph, um, Joseph had been Jacob's favorite. Now Benjamin was. And so this is really the final and the crucial test for the brothers. Are they going to save themselves and ditch Benjamin? That's the big question. Are they going to turn on Benjamin just as they did turn on Joseph those many years ago? And of course they don't. And Judith offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. And this is an incredibly magnificent event in my, in my uh, thoughts. This, this appeal of Judah to Joseph, I think, is the fulcrum around which the entire story of Joseph and his brothers pivot. Todd referenced Judah's actions last week. He indicated that a heart change is required for true reconciliation, that sacrifice is necessary. I noted a few minutes ago in, in chapter 42 that they had admitted their guilt and their actions against Joseph as they talked among themselves. And as I said, they were unaware that Joseph could understand them. But it wasn't enough for Joseph to know they had changed. Maybe they would do the same thing again if they got a chance. And here, when given the opportunity to save themselves at the expense of Benjamin, they didn't do it. Judah offers himself as a substitute. He really models what Jesus has done for all who follow him. Jesus did not save himself as he so easily could have done, but Jesus went to the cross, bore the punishment, and we, like Benjamin, are free. And while Joseph has been able to hide his emotions from his brothers previously, now he is completely undone. And in the first verses of chapter uh, 45, Joseph reveals himself and weeps. He wept so loudly, it says, that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. In verse 3, it says, the brothers were speechless and they were terrified. I bet. Man, what a surprise this would have been, right? Joseph is the second most powerful man in Egypt, right? They must have been in terror that he would avenge for what they had done. Remember, they don't know the end of the story yet. You've got to put yourself in their seat. They don't know they're, they're okay, right? 
They just think, oh no. Because vengeance is the way of the world back then, or it was the way of the world back then, and it's the way of the world today. And we're going to talk more about that shortly. In verse 4, Joseph goes on to convince them that he is really Joseph. He tells them not to grieve or be angry about what they've done, since Joseph is able to trace God's preserving hand through all that happened. In 45, verse 7 of chapter 45, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to give, keep you alive by a great deliverance. And although I could have had Diane, I could have asked Diane to keep reading through chapter 45, I thought, well, that's probably a little long. Um, let me just say that later in the chapter, the brothers embrace and weep together. Now imagine the joy that was there. Joseph, as he's reconciled with his brothers, and now he looks forward to seeing his father who he hasn't seen for probably decades. Imagine the unburdening of the guilt the brothers had. Remember, just think about what got off of their shoulders and their back as they, as they um, confessed to what they had done. It's a little wonder that they wept tears of relief and joy. And it says in verse 15, a really interesting couple of words, it says, they talked. They talked. Think about that. Imagine the stories they told one another. How these stories confirmed God's faithfulness to Jacob's family. Joseph telling them his story, which must have just utterly amazed them. And the brothers catching Joseph up on all those family events and stories that he missed. It, it must have been so glorious. And what a, what a picture of reconciliation and restoration it is for us. What should we take from all this? Well, my first point today is that we all need to offer and ask for forgiveness. This is what Joseph did. He offered forgiveness. This echoes what Todd told us last week. Reconciliation and restoration starts with forgiveness. The problem, as I said a moment ago, is that revenge is the way of the world. And revenge is what Joseph's, father, uh, sorry, Joseph's brothers feared. Vengeance, retribution, repaying evil for evil. That's how the world operates. We see it as nations interact with nations. For a nation not to get vengeance when attacked is seen as a weakness of that nation. And indeed, there are some cases when it is appropriate and just for a nation to respond when attacked. But more commonly, as we think through our history, the cycle of vengeance and retribution propels wars and wars after wars and wars after wars after wars. We see it in politics all the time. And lest you despair, as I often do, that this is some new phenomenon in American political history, you need only to read competent histories of the founding fathers to realize that revenge was as common a political tool back then as it was now, or as it is now. I don't know, maybe that's supposed to make me feel better. I'm not sure. It does a little bit. But when one political party loses power, it's often not enough to simply change the direction of the country. We have to undo, we have to demean, we have to destroy what the other political party has done. And when we don't, something's wrong with us. We see it in business. Everyone wants to win at the expense of the other. If a competitor does well, then how does my company do better and hopefully take away what they have? We have to get back at them. And we see it in family and personal relationships. A person is hurt by someone, so they want to hurt them in return. I've seen it destroy families, and I've seen it destroy people. I'm sure you have as well. 
And you may think that you're not a very vengeful person. I don't think I'm a very vengeful person. You may think you're better than that. But I've discovered I'm not. And I bet you're not either. Because let me ask you a question. Do you ever hold a grudge? Do you ever hold a grudge? I have, I do. I think all of us do. And I'm not thinking about trivial things here. I'm not talking about sports where we may hold a grudge against a team we don't like and those who support them. And, and by the way, if you're a Wake Forest fan today, I don't want to talk to you. Okay, just let me get that out. All right. I don't want to hold any grudges, so just, just keep it quiet today. All right. But I am truly talking about more serious things. We have been living through an epidemic, a pandemic of grudges. Look at the rhetoric in the media. Look at the rhetoric among ourselves about the coronavirus, about masking, about vaccines, about vaccine mandates. And you will see that there are plenty of people, there are plenty of us holding grudges against others. People who hold grudges against other people often want those people to get their just desserts, to get their due, to get the punishment they deserve. D.A. Carson calls this smug vengefulness. I love that phrase smug vengefulness. So you hear, you might hear a pro-vaccine person say or write, I told you so when someone gets seriously ill or even dies of COVID. You might hear an anti-vaccine person say, I told you so when a person has a reaction to a vaccine or gets COVID despite a vaccine. Grudges are ugly. They're demeaning. They're destructive. They consume and destroy the person holding them, they destroy relationships with others, and as we see today, it seems like they can almost destroy a society. Tim Keller has some useful insights here. He says that when you hold, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he says that when you hold a grudge, <coughs> you put yourself in the place of God. Thank you, Todd, for telling me there was water here. <coughs> I don't know what happened. <coughs> excuse me. Let me start that over. Tim Keller has some useful insights here. He says that when you hold a grudge, you put yourself in the place of God. To hold a grudge and to think that you know what people deserve means that you think that you have knowledge that only God has. You think you know everything in the background of their life. You think you know everything about their suffering. <clears throat> you think you know everything about what has influenced them. And so you think you have knowledge that truly only God has. My suspicion is that most of us don't have that knowledge. Just saying. To hold a grudge and to think that you know what people deserve means that you also think that you have the power of God. Keller notes, only God has the power to judge somebody without becoming evil himself. He says all this so well, I'm just going to read from one of his sermons. When someone wrongs you, when somebody really does evil to you, you're standing on the edge of a knife. If you refuse to forgive... If you nurse your anger, which is to say if you want or even seek the power to pay back, that here's the peril. When someone does wrong to you and you don't forgive, ironically, you're becoming evil yourself. The evil that moved the perpetrator to do wrong is coming into you. <clears throat> you see, if you don't forgive someone, you start to get hard and cold. And the longer you don't forgive somebody, the more you nurse your grudge. And that means you become self-pitying, self-absorbed, concentrating on yourself, self-centered, not looking outside of yourself, all kinds of things begin to happen. 
If you try to beat the evildoer at his or her own game, if you try to pay them back, by winning you lose. By repaying evil with evil, you become evil. Why would repaying evil with evil make you evil? Well, even if your punishment is someone meant something in God, terms of God's punishment, which it doesn't, we'll come to that later, even if your punishment of someone meant something in terms of God's punishment, it's highly likely that your punishment would be out of proportion to the offending act. It could be too little. It could be too much. And that's why Keller says that in repaying evil, you become evil yourself. Well, if we're not going to hold a grudge against others for their wrongs against us, what are we supposed to do? Keller's told us, you have to forgive. And if you don't, the grudge will fester. You may think it's doing you no harm, but it will grow and weave itself into your thinking. You will get hard and cold, self-pitying, self-absorbed, self-centered. This is why Paul admonishes us in Romans 12. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So if you're holding a grudge against someone who has offended you, you're actually not the one to give the punishment. You need to offer forgiveness. And there are times, if we're to be at peace with all men, as Paul says, if we're to start reconciliation, there are times in which we need to ask for forgiveness for being the ones holding the grudge. It can work the other way around. While there may be forgiveness needs to be given to the offender, there's also forgiveness that needs to be requested by the grudge holder, if you will. So I'm going to do something a little daring here. Most of you know I'm a physician. And as you might expect, I am pro-vaccine. Some of you are not. And if you're not, then I'm going to confess to you today that I've held grudges against you and many in our society about your views. I have wallowed in smug vengefulness. I have nursed my anger. And this was wrong. I am sorry. I can't ask for forgiveness of our whole society, but I can ask for forgiveness from you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not going to change my view on vaccine, but I'm going to try to quit acting like God. I'm going to quit trying to think that I have all knowledge about all situations, and rather than nurse my grudges, I'm just going to pray that we all, vaccinated or unvaccinated, stay safe from this illness. Wow, I'm feeling less anxious already. So we should all offer and ask for forgiveness. And if you've been holding a grudge on someone else about anything, forgive the one who offended you. Free yourself from acting like God. It's really hard to do that. And if you've been holding a, gr a grudge on someone else about anything, confess the grudge and ask for forgiveness of the one against whom you held it. <clears throat> I can tell you, it's a remarkably freeing act. Now, you do need to recognize my second point today has to do with justice. It's kind of an interesting thing that we don't talk a lot about in this thing with Joseph and his brothers. But our forgiveness does not exonerate the offender. Kind of weird, isn't it? 
In the example I gave you today about myself uh, and the vaccine issues, these grudges were against people who really haven't hurt me directly. Yes, I've been angry, but the views of those people didn't really hurt with me. And you might be thinking, big deal, Jim, that was nothing. Let me tell you, I got grudges about people who have really hurt me. I, on the other hand, have really been hurt by this person or that person. And yes, I'm holding a grudge against them, but they really hurt me and they deserve punishment for what they did to me. And you might be right. They may deserve punishment. But remember, it's not your job to punish them. But there's something else really important going on here that you need to recognize. Your forgiveness of someone who has offended or harmed you is neither a sufficient nor necessary condition for their forgiveness by God. Let me say that again. Your forgiveness of someone who has offended or harmed you is neither a sufficient nor necessary condition for their forgiveness by God. As an example, a person may have been greatly offended and harmed by the infidelity of their spouse. They may have forgiven them, and the two may have been reconciled, but one thing remains. The unfaithful spouse is guilty against a holy God. And the forgiveness offered by the offended party does nothing to remove that guilt. The corollary of that is if you're withholding your forgiveness of someone who has offended you because you somehow think, well, if I forgive them, they won't get their punishment or something like that. Remember, you're wrong. Your forgiveness of another helps reconcile them with you. It doesn't reconcile them with God. And thinking about that unfaithful spouse, the offended party may never forgive them and may harbor anger and hate all their life. But if the offender confesses their sin to God and trusts in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, then they are forgiven by God, even if they are never forgiven by the one whom they offended. That is why I say that your forgiveness does not exonerate the offender, and it's neither a necessary nor sufficient condition for their forgiveness by God. Why do I bring that up? Why do I even talk about that? Why do I even say, point out that our forgiveness does not exonerate people? Because it should free us, shouldn't it? We can and are to forgive in order to start the reconciliation process between us and the offender. That is what God wants among people restored relationships in this life. But God will be just in punishing the offender who is not a follower of Jesus, and he will be the justifier of the offender who is a follower of Jesus on the basis of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. And that is also what God wants among people, restoration of relationship with him. And they're parallel, but they're not the same thing. Joseph was able to forgive his brothers because he was able to see the providence of God working through their action. Yes, working through their action. We have more than a knowledge of the providence of God. We, we have the knowledge of Jesus. As important as it is, the providence of God, and it is, we have additional knowledge and experience of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Those of us here who are followers of Jesus have been forgiven of the offense of grudge holding and forgiven for the offenses for which people hold grudges against us and much more. And this gives us great power because it ultimately gives us the power of forgiveness. 
If we understand the forgiveness that was bought for us by Jesus on the cross, then we should forgive others. And because we are imperfect and will hurt others intentionally and unintentionally, we should be truthful and ask for forgiveness. And as we do this, we will experience ourselves and will model to the watching world the great reconciliation and restoration that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today and you think you don't have the power to forgive what others, forgive others for what they have done to you, first come to Jesus. Get that power of forgiveness. Then extend that forgiveness to all around you and see what happens as reconciliation and restoration breaks out in your life and in your community. May it be so. Amen.